Good morning, guys. If you've been with us for the last four weeks, uh, congratulations. This is the last week in our five-week series we're calling Foundations. And basically what this is, is these are the core convictions. I call them the core convictions that drive what we do as a church. Uh, Think of them as the deal breakers. If you are dating someone or looking to get married or something, before you make any commitments, you want to know, like, what's the deal breaker? Like, what's the thing that maybe... If we aren't cool with this, we part ways. And so for the first five weeks of this year, what we've been wanting to do is unpack those things and say, these are the things we stand on as a church. And we'd love, if you're, if you're with us on that, we'd love to have you be a part with us. If not, God bless. You're always welcome. But just to be honest, we're not going to change on it. So with that said, let me give you a quick review of what we've gone over. Week one, we looked at the message of Jesus and said that the gospel is the power of God to save souls and to change lives. That's the first thing. We begin with the message of Jesus, him crucified and risen, and that's what we build everything else we do on. Next, we looked at us as a congregation, and we said that the church is a picture of life in God's kingdom. If people want to know what life was meant to be under God's rule and reign, they should be able to look at churches to see that. We should be able to tell people, this is the kind of life God has called us to live. And then next, after that, we examined how our personal growth in faith plays a part in all of this. And we, we showed that our changed lives give proof to our message. The evidence, uh, the evidence that people are often, often looking for to know if this, if this message can really do what we say it can do is often going to be you. People are going to look for you to... People who do not know Jesus will look to you to prove that this actually changes people. And then last week, if you were here, we talked about the need to share our faith. And we said this, in order to see lives changed, our faith must be proclaimed. That is, whatever we say and do in here can't stay in here. Our faith in Jesus is meant to be carried out wherever we go in life. Whether it's uh, to our neighborhoods, to our jobs, amongst friends and family, wherever it is, God has made all of us, as we learned, ministers of reconciliation, meaning we are called to go and carry the good news of Jesus to anyone who will hear it. And then this week we finish off our series by looking at maybe one of the most often overlooked practices. Uh, One of the things that, frankly, if you ask people, everyone would say it's important. And most people would tell you they're lousy at it. And that's prayer. So how does prayer fit into this idea of God's mission? Uh, And so the core conviction I have for you this week is this. Prayer opens opportunities when there were none. Now, let me be honest with you guys. When I first set out this idea of moving back to Las Vegas to plant a church, I didn't know where it was going to end up. I didn't know I was going to end up here. I didn't know that there was going to be a church that had started and needed a pastor right along the same time I had been building a core group. There are so many ways in which God has opened up opportunities for our congregation. And I've been very aware of that in the last six months. And so the idea is this. If we want to see God do things that only God can do, we should ask him for it. So... By the way, if you have a Bible with you, uh, please turn to James chapter 5. If you need one, we have some physical copies underneath the chairs. 
if you're like, I don't want to touch a book that a bunch of other people have touched, you can find the Bible on your phone as well. So, like I said, it doesn't take long to find that prayer is the thing that everyone agrees God tells us to do. I don't know anyone who would say they're a Christian that wouldn't say, yeah, no, we're supposed to pray. But given that same thing, I, most people, if you said, how often do you pray or how's your prayer life, they'd go, could be better, could be better, could be a little bit better, you know. And so this is something everybody generally sees a need to grow in. And what I want to suggest is, why is that? Why is it that prayer is rarely one of our strong suits? Well, maybe it's because we're people of action. I want to give us the benefit of the doubt. I want to just look to the worst case scenario. We like results. We like to feel like our efforts have some, are having some kind of tangible difference in the world around us. We want to know that we're making a difference. So it's like, hey, if you have a need, how can I go fill it? How can I go fix something for you? How can I carry your groceries in or, you know, fix whatever's broken on your ceiling? We want to be able to see this is what I did and feel good about it. And that's not wrong. As a matter of fact, it's a good thing. We talked about this two weeks ago, as a matter of fact. We looked at the idea that James, uh, James says, don't just be a hearer of the word, but also a doer of the word. So the idea of wanting to do that is not a, wrong, is not a bad idea. Being a doer is a good thing. But here's the problem. Why don't we think of prayer as doing something? See, what I suspect is that in our hearts, we really think, Prayer is a little bit more like well-wishing. I hope it works out this way. Like prayer is buying a lottery ticket or something. It may, it probably won't happen, but if it does, it'd be really cool if it did, right? I think a lot of us have a tendency to think of prayer that way, and that's affecting our prayer lives. So what I want to suggest is that this kind of thinking reveals something about ourselves. That we don't trust prayer to do much. In other words, our lack of prayer can be a sign of a lack of faith in our own hearts. And a lack of faith that God actually answers and works through the prayers of his people. So I need you to understand this. This is crucial. When we talk about prayer, I would suggest that no other activity so expresses total and utter dependence upon God as prayer does. I don't know that there's any spiritual discipline, any regular Christian practice that is so reliant upon the power of God as prayer. Because in prayer, what we're saying is, God, I can't do it. I need you to do it. It is always an act of faith. So by implication, if God answers prayers and he's the only one who can do it, that means he clearly deserves all the credit for it. So not only does this express total and utter dependence upon God, if it comes through, all glory goes to God. And God's in the habit of doing those kinds of things. Which brings us to the, our passage this morning. James chapter 5. So, like I said, if you would, please turn your Bibles to James chapter 5. We'll be reading through, from verses 13 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore fruit. This is God's word. Amen. So, why did I pick this passage? Other than it talks about prayer... Specifically, I I selected this passage to kind of unpack our core conviction for this week because it addresses something that is clearly out of our control. See, someone in this, this scenario paints a picture of someone who is sick and suffering. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of position? Have you ever found someone, and I don't mean just being sick. Have you ever found someone you loved was in pain and felt utterly helpless to do anything about it? Man, I mean, even in small senses, I think of when my kids are sick. And it's like, I, 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 our, our youngest son, he's not even a year old, and he got sick this last year. And it's like, I'm carrying him, and he's coughing, and all these things. And I'm like, what can I do? And I can't do anything but hold him. There's a feeling of utter hope, helplessness in this kind of situation. We all know what that feels like. And this sense of helplessness is terrifying. So what James does here is he draws us in by pointing to, some, to a seemingly hopeless situation. And his response is, pray. So what should instantly, let's talk about this passage. What should instantly strike us about this passage is how James is confident in, what, in, the, in expecting to see results. So he never seems to hedge his bets here. Look over it. He never says, but maybe not. Pray, and the prayer of faith will heal someone. Or, but if it doesn't, just be cool with it. He doesn't say anything like that. There is no, maybe it will happen, or we'll see what comes of the situation here. And if you pray often, this is sort of a problem. Because if you prayed enough, you've gotten a no. You've gotten something you prayed for that did not happen. You prayed for someone to heal, and they weren't healed. You prayed for provision, and it didn't come. We all know what that is like. Heck, even Jesus knows what that's like. The Bible says that Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, went out to a garden to pray to the Lord, and he said, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. What he meant was, God, if there's any way I don't have to suffer on the cross, let it, let's go with that. And, the, and God's silence on the issue tells us that the answer was no. So even Jesus knows what it's like to get a no to prayer. So clearly we see here that James believes that you and I are prone to prayerlessness. That's our default setting. Our natural inclination is to not pray much. And just one chapter back, as a matter of fact, James said this. He said, you do not have because you do not ask God. So, there is a, so he understands this idea that we are prone to not go, for, go to God with these things. He also senses that we are possibly prone to be To have a weakness in our faith. Prayer is a real weak point in most of our faith. And so James sees our tendency to to not ask God for things, especially good things. And his response seems to be to push us in the opposite direction. 
So far as you desire what God desires, understand this. You should assume that the outcome will probably happen. Now, if it doesn't, and sometimes it doesn't, then we say as Jesus did, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. Every prayer in faith is in some sense trusting in the fact that it's not that God, you know this stuff, you know this world more than me. You made it. But we shouldn't always, but I fear that there's a danger then, assuming that every prayer request is a no answer. And I, what, what that makes me fear is how we see God. God says that he is a good father that knows how to give good gifts to his kids. So we shouldn't walk into the situation thinking, well, I'm going to ask, but he's probably going to be angry at me and, tell, and say no. That should never be our, our bent. As a matter of fact, what James seems to be showing here is that our assumption on prayer should be positively inclined. We should be optimistic about prayer. And because the honest truth is, if you were more optimistic about your prayer, you'd pray more often. And so what... So James expects a response from God. And we are to expect a response from God. So what are we told to pray for? Like if he's talking about this is the kind of stuff you can pray for with confidence. What does he tell us to pray for? Well, James covers both ends of the spectrum of prayer in verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. What he's showing is that prayer is the response in every situation of life both from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. No season of life is too hopeless to avoid prayer or too delightful to take it for granted. By the way, you'll notice that he kind of transitions there. This is a technique we find in a lot of the uh, wisdom literature of the Bible. James goes from let him pray and let him praise. The reason is because praise is, according to the Bible, a form of prayer. So, Usually people think of prayer as only what we would call supplication, which is making requests to God. That's part of prayer, but it's not all of prayer. Prayer is more multifaceted than that. However, when we see prayer as any and all communication with God, we see that even the songs we sing here are an extension of our prayer life. In other words, our services begin and end with prayer here. The big idea is that prayer is not limited to a particular mood. Do you ever notice something? I notice this uh, with people on social media a lot. You ever notice people are really prone, especially non-religious types, ironically, uh, to extend prayer in a time of crisis? You hear things like, our thoughts and prayers go out to you, right? However, what I've noticed is this. Why don't those same people praise God when something good happens? No one says, hey, there wasn't any, there was no horrific tragedy to report today. Praise God for his, his protection. Praise God for his mercy. No one says, hey, if you woke up this morning with breath in your lungs, praise God for that because he gave you that life. And so we tend to look only towards the negative side of prayer. But James does the opposite. He says it's for both of those. It's for the most desperate situation. And it's also for that point when you are overjoyed. Give praise to God. And let those praise be a form of prayer. The Bible calls us to a complete lifestyle of prayer. Therefore, we should not limit our prayers to only our wants and our needs. Likewise, if we are willing to ask God in our desperation, we should also be quick to praise him for our victories and our accomplishments as well. So then James takes our situation a step further. We read, Is anyone among you sick? 
Let him call on the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So when speaking of those who are sick, one thing we should be clear, James isn't talking about a simple cold here. So please, no one, if you're like, I had a runny nose today. Kev, could you come to my house and rub oil on on my nose and pray for me? I'm going to be like, we can probably do this one over the phone. So, (laughs) this appears to be a sickness that is lingering, even potentially fatal. See, it's quite likely something that people were already praying for that hasn't gone away. Thus, the leaders of the church are called in to continue that prayer. Now, why would they bother calling the leaders of the church in? Like, after all, I'll be honest with you. I don't have some kind of magic prayer powers that you don't have. I don't have some closer access to God that you don't have. Why on earth would James say, call in the elders then, if every one of us, if we are a believer, can approach God with confidence? Well, we don't have necessarily special powers, but we do have a greater responsibility to pray. See, there's a story in Acts where there's a problem in making sure widows are being taken care of. And so the apostles, who were the first elders, the first leaders in the Christian church, tell them to appoint godly men to see to it that it gets taken care of. And here's what he says their responsibility is. Here's what the apostles say. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's how important prayer is. The apostles literally say it would be wrong for us to neglect our prayers in order to make sure hungry people are getting fed. Did he mean like it's not important to make sure hungry widows aren't, are, are, aren't fed or are fed? No, not at all. Those are utterly important. That's why they put people in charge of it. But what he's saying there is that the leaders of a church are called to be people who are in the word and in prayer. And that's why they're called in for this task. So the elders are called in to a dire situation because they are specifically tasked by God to be men of prayer. And then to anoint the sick with oil. Now... If you're with me, if you're like me here, I stop at this situation and go, what's the deal with the oil? Like, why did they bring oil into that? So let's talk about that for a second. Why did they rub oil on someone? Well, some people have suggested that this is because oil was used for a medicinal purpose. So using oil was like, anointing someone with oil was sort of like modern medicine. Um... Well, that's fine. That, that's, we see that somewhere in the Bible. That's not exact. That doesn't really keep with the context here. As a matter of fact, there's other things used as medicine in the Bible. Uh, oil and wine are both used in the New Testament to describe a type of treatment. But James didn't say, if anyone of you is sick, go call the elders, take a shot, and they'll be over shortly. <laughs> so that's not, so we don't think that he mean, what James means here is medicinal in its purpose. Why then does he say it? Well, Instead, what we should see is that anointing is used throughout the whole Bible, especially anointing with oil, as a symbolic purpose of setting things apart for God. If it helps you, think of anointing with oil like God's form of a highlighter marker, basically. We would hi- they, would, they would highlight or anoint, priests were anointed, objects in the temple were anointed, altars were anointed. Oils were, were, like I said, a way of drawing specific attention to people or things. They're a way of setting them apart for a specific purpose. This is most likely why those with a persistent, dangerous sickness were anointed. It was a way of saying, God, we are setting our special attention on them. We ask that you give, give special attention to them as well. 
So then James turns to a different type of prayer. He, le- he looks at confession. Tail end of verse 15 into 16 says, And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So just as making prayer requests or supplication as it's called and adoration, praising God, are forms of worship and prayer, so are the confession of sins. Now, if you've been here a while or today, you know that we tend to always carve out time in our, in our service to confess our sins and our needs to God. Why? I don't want to miss the point here that there is a value in doing this as a congregation. But I don't want us to overlook the fact there's also a value in confessing your sins and faults to each other as well. See, that's what he's talking about here. It's not just confessing our sins to God. We should do that. God already knows it. But we should also confess our sins to each other. See, there's a subtle transition we see here in verse 16. First, we were talking about someone else. Let them lay hands on him, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then he moves over here. Therefore, you guys confess sins to each other. Why? So that that person may be healed? No. So that you may be healed. That's what we see here. We are also the people who receive the benefit of God's God's forgiveness when we repent and confess our sins to each other. Just Just as they are healed by calling on God, so are we as well. Confession is therefore part of a Christian's ordinary prayer life. You should make a habit of it. Now, I don't want to overlook this and just be like, yeah, confess your sins, that's great, move on. I'm not the only person in this room, I'm sure, that when I say, ooh, confess your sins to to each other, my first thought is, sure about this? Like, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't want to glance over this because I'm sure I'm not the only person here who the phrase confess your sins to one another is not the first thing you go to. It's an uncomfortable statement. So why does this idea of confession so rub us the wrong way? I believe it's because we all want to show our best faces, to be honest with you. Uh, We all want to show our best faces to most people. And I get that. Look, to to try to say it from a less selfish standpoint... I don't want my mess-ups to mess up someone else's faith. I don't want it to be a hindrance to someone's faith. So what we often think is, okay, cool. Since that's the case, I'm going to put my best fo- face forward, and I'm going to try to like, not show all the faults and all the, the imperfections in my life. But consider this for a second, guys. If God is the person who tells us to confess our sins to each other, in what way could it actually hinder the faith of someone else? Like, nothing God tells you to do in his word is something that is going to hinder the faith of someone else. Someone is not going to not come to Jesus because they found out you messed up. If God told us to do it, it has to actually be good for our faith, as a matter of fact. So, What I want to suggest is that this facade of perfection is a bigger problem to the witness of the church than an honest confession of our sins are. We talked about this last week when we talked about witness. I told you, be willing to be you around people. Paul was willing to be him around people. You should as well. A good man or woman who is open about his his or her shortcomings is a powerful witness to the gospel. However... The greatest benefit 
isn't just to the people you want to share your faith with. The greatest benefit of the confession of sins is ourselves. David, King David said it this way. He said, when I kept my sins within me, my bones wasted away. There is something toxic about holding our faults and failures in. They were always meant to be given up. They were always meant to be confessed, turned away from, so that we might trust in the power of the cross to save us. After all, we are the ones who receive the healing here, according to James. And then finally, James gets to the crux of his argument at at the tail end of verse 16. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is the idea that he's getting at. This is what he's been going for. Righteous people see amazing results in their prayers. Now here's the question then. What is the prayer of a righteous person? See, last time we looked at James, I said James kind of seemed to set himself apart against What Paul says, we see that again here. See, Paul said this in Romans chapter 3. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. Quoting Isaiah, he says, None is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you see the problem here? If the prayer of a righteous person has great power... But no one is righteous? How is anybody supposed to tap into that power that James speaks of here? Well, we get a little clue here from the example. See, James gives us an example who someone who who gave the prayers of a righteous man. Elijah. Listen to how he explains Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, don't get me wrong, guys. Elijah was a standout guy, but he wasn't perfect either. For example, anybody who knows the story of Elijah knows that after having seen God both shut the clouds and making it rain, then feared Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, who threatened to kill him. And he he cowered in fear afterwards. Take a minute to think about it. This is the person, James says, the prayer of a righteous man. When he asked God, the Lord literally changed the weather for him. People who have magical weather control powers should not be afraid of anything, okay? Not only was Elijah afraid, but he complains to God. We see it in in his story. He says, I am the only one who believes in you, God, which was not true. What then was unique about Elijah's prayers? He wasn't faultless. He wasn't perfect. What was unique about his prayers? Answer. His faith. See, Elijah believed that God could do what he asked him to do. He prayed fervently. The, exact, the actual translation here literally says, translates, prayerfully he prayed. Therefore, I believe that this is not some gigantic leap from what was said earlier, but a continuation of it. The prayer of a righteous man is the same thing as the prayer of faith that James has already mentioned. This goes back to an old concept from the Old Testament that we find in Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. See, righteousness and faith go hand in hand. While we are on the subject of faith, I need to clarify something. Because faith is a popular kind of like buzzword in our day and age. We hear it a lot. And not everybody who talks about faith means the same thing that we mean when we say faith. So I need to clarify what faith is and it isn't. 
See, the modern world values faith as good in and of itself. All you need is faith in, basically all you need is faith in faith. This is not what the Bible's talking about. Guys, according to the Bible, faith means trust. And according to the Bible, faith is only as good as the thing you put your trust in. The Bible is not accommodating to some kind of generic faith. As a matter of fact, if you read the Old Testament, God constantly mocks the idols of pagan culture for being useless. Likewise, he doesn't speak highly of those who trust in their own wisdom and smarts to be their confidence, but rather calls it foolishness. The reason I bring this up is because faith isn't willing, to, isn't willing something into existence. When people are criticized for their lack of faith, they are being criticized because their idea of God is too weak and small to actually answer their prayers. In other words, ye of little faith is meant to imply you whose concept of God is too small to actually do something. If we think of it as something in us, we set ourselves up for disappointment. True Christian faith, therefore, rests on the power of God and God alone. So to sum up, what's James saying here? He's saying that prayer is for every aspect of life, for the best of times and for the worst of times. It's for us personally, but also for us as a community. And it actually does something. It heals. It heals those in pain. It heals us when we are burdened by our own sin. It is a righteous act because it trusts in God who can do all things for us. So, we all want to embrace this as a church. Specifically, let me show my cards here. What I am challenging you to remember in your prayers is the work of God in our church. Add that to your prayer life. We talked about this last week. We are entrusted with the message of reconciliation. God is not sitting around angry with us because of our faults and failures. He's dealt with our sin by sending Jesus to the cross. And now he sends us out to tell others about Jesus. So my encouragement for you this week, pray for opportunities to do just that. God wants the sick to find healing. Jesus came to call sinners to follow him. And I am asking all of us to ask God to put people on our hearts and minds and to give us chances to share our faith with them. So the same James who wrote this passage also wrote this. I quoted it earlier. You do not have because you do not ask. Guys, let's let that not be true of us this week. Let us not be a people that God can say you do not have because you do not ask. Ask God to use us for his glory. Ask God to use you for his glory. Ask God to lead lost people in your direction. Ask God to give us the courage to share our faith with others. In other words, ask God to make reconciled church an example of life under the rule and reign of Jesus. Just ask.